Welcome to the Reimagining Faith podcast with the Pastors Jackson. This is a podcast for seekers, dreamers, and fellow sojourners who are trying to figure out what it means to be followers of Jesus in the 21st century. <sighs> Hi, Nicole. Hello. <laughs> um, it is after Christmas. Mm-hmm officially after Christmas, after the 12 days of Christmas. Also after Epiphany. We have passed Epiphany, and we are now... Is this is there a season of Epiphany, or are we in ordinary time? It depends. Depends on how you follow. Uh, in the past, I've just done an Epiphany season, because I think Epiphany is wonderful. <laughs> um, but I think technically it's considered ordinary time. Mm. But you could also say, like, Epiphany 2A... Epiphany 3A. <laughs> Epiphany 2, Electric yeah. Boogaloo. Yeah, 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 yeah. But now it's 2023. It is 2023. It's a new year. So we thought, what a great time for a new series. Yeah. Keep us on track. It's always easier to do regular things when there's a, a theme and a series that ties them all together. So we are endeavoring now to enter into a nine-part series, um, which we're hoping to be a weekly deal. Hopefully get to you earlier in the week instead of Fridays. I know that's always tough for people to listen to podcasts over the weekend. But um, we thought, let's go back to the beginning. Let's go to our founding principles. Um, and when we were endeavoring to plant this church and figure out what we were, um, we came up with three... Generous... Generous what? What would you call it? Generous. Uh, Convictions? Yeah. Yeah. Like, the if you were to, like, diagram it, it would be, like, Open Table UCC, number one. And then Theologically Progressive, number two. But, like, under each of those things, we're kind of covering... A very broad. Oh yes, I see what you mean. Category. Yes. So we we came down that we are theologically progressive, Pottstown focused, with Jesus at the center. Right. Um, the Jesus at the center part is the last thing that we say in those three, though it is the most important. Right. Hence center. Hence center. But we are going to get to Jesus at the end of our series. But I don't want you to think that that's because it's. He's the least important part. Hmm. Um, but rather, we want to show you through the first six weeks just how much Jesus pervades all of the things that we do. And then by the time we get to it, you'll be like, oh, yeah, no, I get it. I'm, I told, I'm on board. I get it. Yeah. It's like this is the what. Jesus is the why. Like hmm. it, it kind of um, inspires our thought processes and ways of being and so it's hard to know which one to talk about first when the Jesus at the center kind of encompasses the whole thing. Mm -hmm. So I guess we're going to like start specific and move to general. Yeah. Well, and we're going to get real specific when it comes to talking about Jesus, too. So. Correct. Correct. We have <laughs> we have talked about Jesus. To be fair, we did a historical podcast on, on who Jesus was in time and place. And um, did we? We did. Are you sure? I'm not sure we ever released that one. Was that the one that we had gotten halfway through and then it was super late and then we decided to change it for the next week? Where is Jesus when everything sucks? 
Yeah, we we I had originally written out this episode about the historicity of Jesus, and then there was that home that exploded in Pottstown, and so instead we we took what the bones of that episode, and we ended up turning it on its head to talk about where Jesus is in the midst of all the suffering. Mm-hmm. And I touched on it a little bit. You're right, I did on a little bit of his socioeconomic upbringing and whatever, but. Yeah, he got all intermingled in with suffering, as it always does. I mean, it's like we talk about things, and in the end, we end up talking about Jesus. Like, I think <laughs> it's it's not something that's, you know, like, this is what we believe about this thing. This is what we believe about this thing. But, like, the spirit of Jesus pervades all of it. We, mm. we do the things we do because of who Jesus was and um, how he lived and what he taught and— um just the the Jesus tradition over thousands of years, right? So, um, yeah, yeah. Which is why, when we proudly declare ourselves to be theologically progressive, there is a part of me that recoils from that, right? As if I just admitted something that I wasn't supposed to admit. <laughs> like I just said the dangerous thing, and, and really, like progressive. I I would venture to say there are folks who would say that you call yourself progressive. That's hilarious. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, and then also other people who would say like you're dangerous. Like, mm-hmm. uh, so I think in in many ways, like it's important that we say what we mean mm-hmm. when we say theologically progressive. Yeah, I, I mean, I was raised in a. Um, I would say my school and my church were a bit more. We're, we're pretty fundamentalist. In, in the ways that we believe, in the way we read the Bible, and the way that we think politically, and all of those things. I, I think my family was a bit more middle of the road, but the places where I received most of my um, um, social pressure mm. <laughs> were places in which words like progressive or liberal were synonymous with godless. Right. And those were insults. You used at people, not proud badges to wear on your on your shirt. We would certainly never put that in um, in our descriptive. You know, even 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 as I was kind of my faith was changing and moving towards the ex evangelical world and the emerging church and everything. We we would come up with clever words and phrases so that we don't have to use the word progressive. We would use. Um, I mean, Shane Claiborne is trying to make red letter Christians happen um, because to say that you are a liberal evangelical just carries too much baggage. Yeah. Right. But I want to reclaim some of what it means to be progressive. Yeah. So so what what does it mean to you to be progressive, Pastor? So in specific, the, the, what we want to do over the next couple of episodes as we explore what it means to be progressive Christians is today we're going to spend most of our time talking about the Bible, how we read it, how we interpret it, how it historically has been read and interpreted. And you might actually be surprised by some of how historical we are in our interpretation, Mm. Um, that we're not as far out on the limb as you think. Um, We also next week want to talk about justice. It just seems strange that justice and mercy are progressive ideals. It just seems like they should be human ideals. 
Um, there's a Five Iron Frenzy song in which he says, why is grace civil disobedience? And that has stuck with me the past year as I struggle with, um, why is grace civil disobedience? Why is justice and mercy and inherent human goodness? Why, why are those things progressive ideals? Why aren't they mm. just human ideals? Um, so we'll get into that. And then the week after that, I want to talk about science because I have to talk about science <laughs> or else I will burst because uh, things like evolution really changed my, my faith and helped me to broaden and expand those things. But broadly speaking... <laughs> to be progressive. All that to say. I think at the very core of progressive and conservative ideologies is where do you think better days are? Hmm. Are better days ahead? Are we moving towards better days? Is humanity getting better? Are we progressively more hopeful for a future that is more equitable and good and profitable for everyone? Or are better days behind and have we lost them? And do we need to fight to reclaim them and reinterpret the better days in the past for our present day? Hmm. And that to me is, in as somebody who has transitioned from very, very conservative to uh, what I would say is very liberal or progressive, that yeah. that's the distinction I would make. How about you? That is a really interesting way to put it. Oh, thank you. I think for me, a lot of what being progressive is kind of living with a evolving theology. Um a, a theology that is not fixed. Hmm. So when you're conserving something, you're like protecting it, right? Like you're mm-hmm. <laughs> you're you're making sure that it it stays um, fresh, that it stays uh, relevant. Um, but so so like I would I would I would see my uh, very conservative past as as preserving this. Um, way of being as a progressive i feel like there is a very active holy spirit at work um, that is revealing god's face and god's spirit and god's movement in ways that are not just of the past but that are that are evolving that are um that are fresh Something that is much less, I'm having a hard time figuring out how to say it. Something that's well fixed is what I'm... Yeah, something that's not fixed. One of the things that my friend um, Rachel Jackson loves to say is that evolution does not denote progression. That things that are more evolved are not necessarily better things. Right. They're just better adapted to the current situation. Right, right. So instead of saying, like, this is how um, it has always been and that's the right thing, um, I, I would say that we, we look at what's happening around us. We look at the past and, and, and we see the way forward. So I think the way that you expressed it was really helpful um, that there, there is a, an eye to what is actually happening in current time and space and where we want to be, like what kind of 
world we want to leave for not only our children, but our grandchildren, like long after we left? Do we want them to be hanging on to a God of of tradition and, and um, you know, theological concepts that have been the same over history, although that's not even really all that accurate either. But like, or do they, do we want to leave a world where, um, where our offspring can still see God? Mm-hmm. Um, because that God is moving with them. Yeah. So here's a, here's a fancy uh, seminary word. <clears throat> Uh, hermeneutic. <laughs> um, that's it's one of those wonderful words that people love to throw around, and they sound like they went to school. But You're so smart. Uh, basically, at the end of the day, it is the thing that informs how you read and interpret scripture. Right. We all have some some hermeneutic. Mm-hmm. Some of us have examined our hermeneutic, and we've thought deeply about what informs the way that we think about scripture and the world and God. Some of us have not examined it, but we still have it. And there are plenty of us who think that we are objective (laughs) and that we approach things from an objective standpoint. And those people um, are are, are Mm self-deceived. That is such a thing is impossible. Um, Your brain itself is biased and you have to use your brain to examine historical facts. So you're the thing that you're filtering it through is in itself biased. So you can't ever get to objective truth. But that's a. I remember one of the things that I I took most away from our theology classes was this like Wesleyan quadrilateral. Do you remember mm-hmm. this, um, John Wesley? Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of in in this vein of like Methodism, um, that there are like four lenses from which we interpret the Bible and that we interpret theology and and faith. And um, I'm definitely not a Methodist um, because Methodist is not UCC and I'm UCC. Um, but and labels matter. Yeah, right. So, <laughs> um, but the idea is that there are like four four places from which you kind of interpret make experience. sense. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that is from a place of uh, tradition, uh, a place of reason, a place of experience, and a place of Scripture. Scripture, right. So this idea that like different traditions, different ways of practicing faith kind of place higher value on one of those four than the others, but really like none of us come to it with only one or even only three. <laughs> like we come to it with all four. And, um, and I, I think... That's always been really helpful for me. Like, just because I believe in the Bible does not mean that I can't also think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> does It also means that my experience is invalid or um, is, you know, just something that I need to ignore because the Bible is supreme. Um, <laughs> and while I would 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 identify as someone who who thinks the Bible is 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 quite supreme. Um Experience, tradition, and reason have very much influenced how I read the Bible. So um, even the way that I used to view the Bible is different because I just there's, there's say, more in the toolbox. You had more experiences. 
you honed your reason and you discovered that there's more to tradition than just the past 50 years. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And then all four of those things, they all play together in this sandbox as you are interpreting your life and, and the ineffable God. Yeah. I, I think when I think about my own hermeneutic, so what is it that colors how I read scripture, how I understand scripture? I think my hermeneutic is a story. Uh, the story that is in the book of Acts of uh, Peter. Hmm. And Peter is, uh, you love Peter because he's he such screws an, up in public. Such a little idiot. I love um, him. But he just, he messes up in capital letters and he's not, so he's all of us. <laughs> right. Like when I say that he's an idiot, I don't think Peter specifically is an idiot. He just reflects the impulsive and the impulsive desire uh, to be faithful. His heart, his yes. gut, his, mm -hmm. his, his deeply embedded belief systems. They all matter to him deeply, deeply down mm -hmm. inside. And, and uh, sometimes that serves him. <laughs> sure. Um, he was like the head of the church, right? Um Sometimes it doesn't serve him. Sure. But yeah, he, he's all of us and I, I love him for that. So Peter is not a is not trained in religion. He never went to to Torah school. He never learned any of those things, but he is a good observant Jew. Um, he is he is well learned enough and well-respected enough in his community. He's a businessman. He's, he, I think we, we have some textual evidence that he had multiple, um, multiple fishing boats in different locations. And so maybe he was like a small business owner, maybe the equivalent of like a McDonald's franchise owner or something like that. Like he had multiple employees and he, he's kind of got a good head on his shoulders. And Jesus said to him that you will be the rock on which I build the church. So Peter is taking everything very seriously at this point. And Jesus is is dead and resurrected and then sent on to heaven. And so Peter's on his own with his fellow disciples trying to make sense of a world without Jesus. Mm -hmm. You know, what do we do? How how are we supposed to interpret the things that Jesus said? Are we, I, I can't, are, do we have the authority to add new teachings? I've, my goodness, this whole thing is, is just new and fresh and unknown. And so he gets a vision one day while he's napping on the roof, which just sounds so good, right? <laughs> to nap on the roof with the sunlight and the warmth and oh, it's just so good. And he's hungry because it's midday and he gets this vision of a sheet descending from heaven. And on that sheet, it's just a bunch of animals and there's there's clean and unclean animals, like ritually clean and unclean, mm. like according to the law that was given to Moses and handed down to the people, like like not just local ordinances, but like God's divine law and 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 and, and not divine law that God told them this is good for, you know, 120 years and after that the law expires there was no indication that there was an expiration date on these laws hmm. and religious laws and local laws it's the same deal right so this sheet comes down it's got all those unclean animals and the voice of god comes down and says mm, have a nibble and uh he goes um hey nice try god <laughs> 
good test, but I see right through you. I am not allowed to eat any of these things, and I have never eaten any of these things because I am I am a good Jewish boy who has observed kosher law since I was born. So no, I'm not going to eat this shrimp cocktail that you've given to me because I know I'm not supposed to. Checkmate. And thinking the whole thing was some kind of religious test. But the voice of God says to him, do not call unclean what I have made clean. And he's like, oh no, what, on, what, wait, wait, what? And then when he's trying to figure out what that means, he wakes up because the people in the house are like, oh, uh, hey, Peter, sorry, sorry to wake you up, but you've got a visitor. And that visitor is an emissary from the house of Cornelius, who is a, uh, not just a Gentile, but a Roman centurion. So like the people who are oppressing your people, the soldiers that have abused your family and taken your young girls and who have stolen your food and your money and who have ransacked your country. One of them, not even, you know what, not even just a soldier, but like a leader of soldiers, like a super soldier. You've mm. got um, this guy, this guy wants to talk to you and he's got this vision in his mind and he goes there and this guy, Cornelius, shares with him what has happened to his heart, to his soul, what he's experienced. And Peter prays for this guy, which first of all, he walks into the house, not allowed to do. Just that in and of itself is breaking the law. He has now stepped out into unknown territory, leaving behind the very clearly established religious rules and laws and social mores, and has walked into this guy's house. And what does he encounter but this amazing outpouring of the Holy Spirit in which this guy, Cornelius, and all of his family, they just start speaking in tongues, and there's just like all this really outward, visible signs of something invisible that is happening. And Peter... God bless him in his heart of hearts. He goes, huh? <laughs> uh, I, uh, I have no idea what's happening. I had this vision. <laughs> um, but he hears that word of Jesus. Do not call unclean what I have made clean. And so he decides not to pass judgment on the situation, but to just allow it to be something new and terrifying and potentially paradigm shifting. And so he goes then to the Jerusalem council to be like, y'all, you're never going to guess what happened to me. <laughs> and he explains the situation to them and he ends his explanation by saying, and look, God very clearly did a thing. And I don't know why. And I don't get it. It's very clearly against our rules, but God did a thing. And so who am I to stand in the way of the Holy Spirit? And the Jerusalem church, the, the elders, those people who had walked with Jesus, they felt the same kind of weird confliction that like, oh, yeah, no, this really does fly in the face. This isn't just a, a reinterpretation of old law. This is like a repudiation of old law. Hmm. Okay, we'll go with it. And they try to do that together. They try to interpret the new movements of the spirit together. Something mm -hmm. changed. There was a new thing that was happening that directly violated some of the interpretations of the old way. Traditions that had been in place for thousands of years 
interpretations of laws passed down from God to your heroic ancestors that had not been questioned, now they suddenly don't work. And Peter had the faith in the Spirit to say, all right, we're writing some of this. <laughs> we're, we're writing some new chapters right now, and we're just going to do our best. Hmm. And the Jerusalem church did their best together. They didn't make any interpretations alone. Right. They worked together in an interpretive community. They worked like uh, like a whole array of, of telescopes that all brought in information together and made a more full picture. And so that story colors my entire hermeneutic of Scripture. Right. Where, yeah, there are parts of Scripture that seem very clear, but there are moments in history where revelation changes things, and both have to be true. Right. Like, the only other way that I can interpret that story is to say that Jesus had authority to modify what, morality? To <laughs> modify things that were good and not good, clean and unclean. And he gave that authority to the disciples and then to nobody else. And once the disciples were dead, then the canon closed. Nobody else was allowed to write scripture or <laughs> reinterpret anything. Now everything is set in stone. But the Bible itself doesn't say that. The disciples themselves don't say that. Jesus says that you, my people, will do more than I did. Um, so there is no indication of that, that, that revelation ended. Right. And so I, I, I kind of see the whole unfolding of the stories of scripture and the way that we've read it and the way that we've continued to live as generally progressive revelation, you know? So, so Paul writes, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. And when I was young, I was taught that that meant that women should never teach in school and never have authority over men. And our church, you know, allowed women to be in charge of the youth. But we know when the kid was 18, she couldn't be in charge of him anymore. Mm -hmm. And we had and Wayne Grudem came up with very specific sets of circumstances mm. that women were allowed to do and what they were not allowed to do in the church. And, you know, I even told this girl that I was dating, that her Lutheran pastor mother didn't actually appreciate or understand scripture and that she was <laughs> sinning by being a female pastor. And I thought less of her. And I thought that this person obviously is not a real Christian because how she doesn't respect scripture. Hmm. How'd that work out? Um, great. Absolutely perfect. Um, we never had a fight about anything ever again, and I'm definitely not married to a pastor right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, what happened was I realized the Spirit is doing something, and people were starting to be receptive to it because society was starting to be more accepting of the fact that women are people <laughs> and are in many ways more capable of doing the work than men. Well, and also, like, you do have scriptures where that is, like, plain, where it is says, like, women should not mm -hmm. teach, right? Um, it doesn't say women can teach Sunday school and not from the pulpit. It does mm. not say that she can head up the women's ministry and not the men's. Like, it says women can't do this. But then there's also, like, biblical evidence of women leading mm. um and 
a lot of what what is happening there is is looking at context and looking at what is happening in the the surrounding circumstances. Um, why was Paul saying that? Was he trying to preserve some tradition or was he speaking into a situation? Paul has his foibles. Um, <laughs> but I th- I think, you know, like there, there there is biblical evidence that it was not as straightforward as as a more conservative view of women in ministry would like to say that it is. You know, I realize now that um, when I started asking those kinds of questions, having come back from college and was summarily, summarily, that's a word, sent packing, um, I was, we had great answers for why you can't recontextualize Paul's commandments based on modern feminist culture. (laughs) But we never had any problems doing the same thing about slavery. Because we all kind of universally agreed that slavery is a bad thing. But at the same time, we would read, you know, Paul writing slaves obey your masters. And we'd be like, well, it was a cultural thing because everyone had slaves. And so, you know... It was a cultural thing. Mm-hmm. And we've <laughs> dropped things like head coverings. We've dropped things like sending women away for a couple days when it's that time of the month, um, which, I mean, if we're going to be biblical literalists here, yeah. I'd, like, I'd like to experience. You should get a multi-day vacation every month. Every month. Every month. Um, but, like, we don't take those things into consideration. We We... You're saying that everyone is selective about how they apply scripture, but only some people are honest about it? That's, that could be accurate. (laughs) It could be accurate. I'm also saying that I would really like a monthly vacation. That's not a bad idea. It's a hard time of the month. It's not great. No, I I don't envy you. (laughs) (laughs) So I... You know, along along those lines, um, I I believed very strongly in biblical inerrancy hmm. and infallibility. Those are two different concepts. Yes, and say right? what and and what might you define those words? Um, uh, they get messy, and depending on who you talk to, they might define them slightly differently. But basically, it comes down to there are no errors in the Bible. Hmm. It's inerrant, so. Everything is divinely inspired, therefore can't be wrong. we read about the global flood and two of every kind of animal making it into an ark, that thing must be true in some way, shape, or form. That has to be true. That happened. This is how you end up Mm. with, um, you know, a a scale-sized replica of the ark in Kentucky, um, which just had to sue their insurance for flood damage. I think I read somewhere. Um, (laughs) To be fair, we don't have any gopher wood left. We don't really know what that was. So that's what the ark was supposed to be built out of. And so we don't have it. And, you know, got to use pine or whatever. But anyway, um, infallibility generally means that everything the Bible affirms that it is true is true. Hmm. 
So that way, you know, there's a story of, of like Jephthah, who was one of the judges, who said to God, hey, God, I'm so super thankful for winning the battle. I'm going to sacrifice the first thing that comes out of my door. And uh, his daughter came running out the door to say, Daddy, I love you. And he's like, ah, dang it. Now I have to sacrifice my daughter. So like <laughs> you can believe infallibility and you can believe that, wow, don't do that. Um, that's a, that's a, that's a cautionary tale more than it is. We don't have to affirm that that is a good thing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There's a little bit more wiggle room in that, but you do still have to affirm everything that the Bible says. So when, when the Bible says that, um, Isaiah, uh, is talking with King Hezekiah and says, you're going to get better from your illness. And Hezekiah is like, prove it. And he's like, all right, check the wall. And he looked and the sun set backwards on his wall. And then it set the right way. Like, a biblical literalist would have to say that, all right, well, I guess the sun went backwards for a couple hours and then moved forward. But then <laughs> that's not written in any other history. You never see any like Chinese astronomer writing about this super wacky time when the sun moved the wrong way. But I had to find a way to affirm that if I'm going to be a biblical literalist. And there's all kinds of statements. There's all kinds of ways of explaining these things away and Um, They all kind of have their own explanation. But at the end of the day, it was important that the Bible be pristine. Hmm. And I kind of labored under the illusion that that was the most ancient way to read the scriptures. Hmm. And that it was really modern liberals who were twisting scriptures to make it believe, to make it mean whatever you want, right? Who would say that the creation in Genesis is an allegory or a metaphor or mm. a poem or a story? Like that's just liberals who don't want to do the hard work of being a Christian. We, yeah, I well, I was gonna say like it to be a progressive Christian or a progressive theologian. If you view it that way, it's like, we're the cowards. We're the ones who try to twist it to fit our own narratives that we don't, like, we're the rebels. Like, we're the rebels because we want to have our cake and eat it too, which is Mm -hmm. also a weird metaphor, but... um, (laughs) Right, just eat half the cake, and then you've got it, and you've eaten it. Bada bing, bada boom, problem solved. uh, Yeah, so, like, I... (laughs) I I think for a long time I resisted even using that label because from the place from which I came would kind of would would scream radical mm-hmm. or rebellious or not Christian, right? Like how dare you question the inerrancy? Mm-hmm. How dare you say that this isn't right? Like this isn't when it it that's not exactly what progressives are even trying to say. Um, but that was the view that I had. Yeah. That um, And were you also led to believe that that was the oldest and purest way to read Scripture? Of course. Yeah. The simple reading is the most accurate reading. Right. The Bible says it. I believe it. That's it. Yeah. Right. B-I-B-L-E stands for the basic instructions before leaving Earth. Oh, I thought you were going to sing the... 
Yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. And don't even get me started that the Bible never claims to be the word of God, but that it contains the word of God and the word of God is made flesh in Jesus only. But, you know, that's a different episode. Maybe we'll save that for like the Jesus section on why I never say the word of God when I'm talking about scripture. But that's a different rant for another day. (laughs) I learned... I don't know when I learned it, um, that biblical literalism and inerrancy and all that fun stuff is totally modern. Hmm. That is not the way that the church has historically read scripture or understood it in the least. The idea that the words are unchangeable, unmovable, there is one meaning behind everything, that only arises in the 1800s. Hmm. comes to prominence in the early 1900s with the fundamentalist movement, which Hmm. was reacting against the classical liberals, which are not, when we say liberal today, (laughs) it's very different. Um, Words, 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 and all that. But this idea of biblical literalism really comes out of the scientific movement of like the 1700s. Hmm. You know, when... When you can explain the movements of stars and planets with an equation, and you can predict how the universe works by numbers and letters, you kind of start to unlock these secrets. And and we imagine in those days that reason and logic will save humanity, will become our own gods, as it were, this move away from superstitious religion and into the supremacy of the human mind and reason. And it's all, I mean, that's all a myth. That's, we've been, two world wars have disavowed us of that idea. But at the time, if you wanted to be respected in academia and in the marketplace, you needed to show that you could play the same game as science. Hmm. And so... People started treating the Bible as if it were a science book, like it Hmm. were the works of Newton instead of the works of ancient people writing in very different times and and cultures. And that is where biblical literalism is born in the Hmm. 1800s, Um, (laughs) not at all in the early church or in the medieval church or whatever. Hmm. What, What was it instead? We borrowed our way of reading scripture, surprisingly, from the Jews, from (laughs) whom we borrowed every part of Christianity, because (laughs) Christianity is a Jewish religion at its core, at its root. It was founded by Jews, exclusively by Jews. (laughs) It was just a sect of Judaism. And so the ways that the early Christians interpreted scripture and interpreted their experiences with Jesus and his teachings came from the early rabbis. They didn't have the well-established rabbis of later, but the the way of reading, the way of turning scripture like a gem to see new facets and new reflections off of them, um, we, we first get a kind of robust method for interpreting scripture from the, uh, from origin I think it was second century, um, alternatively called a church father and a heretic, depending on what era you're reading him in. He's borrowing a lot from Philo of Alexandria, who is a, a, a Jewish f- philosopher and historian. Um, but he read scripture in kind of three layers. 
And there's a fourth layer that gets added on later, and I'll just add it on now for clarity. Um, but just kind of four layers. So imagine any story in Scripture, any text in Scripture, um, be it the creation or that wacky story with the sheet full of animals or <laughs> a Jesus on the cross or any story at all, and then let it sift through these four layers like a water purifier. The first layer is the literal interpretation. The easiest. This is where fundamentalists stop. Hmm. Um, this is what the thing says. At this stage, you're looking at the history. You're looking at the context around it. Maybe you're reading up on first century Greco-Roman ideals of purity or something like that. You're trying to figure out what it meant to the people who read it for the first time. Put it in its context. What does it literally say? And that's the first and least interesting level to these people. The second level um, is typological. This is um, sort of allegories. This connects stories. You're thinking in spiderweb terms now. So you read uh, Jonah, and Jonah gets swallowed up by a whale, and he's in the whale for three days, and then he emerges, and he brings this good news to the people. And uh, early Christians would read that, and they would read it in light of Jesus hmm. being in the grave for three days. Um, not to say that Jonah is Jesus, but <laughs> Jonah is a type of Jesus. Jesus mm. is a type of Jonah. Now we can put those two stories together and they can help interpret the other. And we can learn a bit more at the soul level of that. Um, the third level is the moral level. Um, this is kind of the, all right, all that to say, how then shall we live? What's the moral of the story? What are, we, what are we to take away from this? One of my favorite times, I, I asked people in a, a previous church, um, if, if Genesis 1 and 2 didn't literally happen, what's the moral of the story? What are we supposed to take away? Hmm. And one of their insights was that none of this was an accident. Somebody intentionally made the things. Hmm. And I liked that. I yeah. thought, oh, that's a really good moral lesson. Now I can read Genesis 1. And now I can look at the world as something that was made intentionally hmm. by whatever process it actually evolved into the place it is now, but that there is a, a kind of loving intent behind the hmm. universe, right? This, that's kind of the third level, the moral level. Um, and then later Christians added the fourth one, which is the anagogical, which is totally a word you're going to remember, <laughs> um, which just means it deals with future events of uh, Christian history, heaven, hell, the last judgment, um, prophecies, whatever it is. What, what's going to happen? How does this scripture help us to live into the future, basically? Um, so, to summarize, first layer, it's literal. It teaches history. The second level is allegorical. It helps you figure out what you should believe. Third level is moral. It helps you to figure out what to do. And the fourth is the anagogical, which is helping you figure out where you're going. Mm. And so there is no single preferred meaning and interpretation of any given text. We're using those four layers to continually um, turn that gem around and see new facets and new reflections and find new applications for new and unprecedented times. And so you can filter every bit of scripture through those four 
and you can end up with really interesting uh, ideas. Um, you end up with Dante's exploration of the underworld and and heaven uh, based on based on this, hmm. based on putting together allegories and trying to interpret our modern world through these. Um, so that's the historical way of reading scripture. You know, even even Augustine, you know, good old uh, conservative Augustine that those of us who grew up in tradition in, in um, uh, fundamentalist places would very rarely ever learn anything about actual historical Christians other than Augustine, because he's <laughs> the one who's like, don't have sex. Um, <laughs> people are inherently bad. You know, that guy. Yeah. Um, even him. He's like, hey, look. There's a lot of heathens out there who know a lot more about science than you do. And when you go off spouting incorrect scientific ideas that you picked up from scripture, you look like an idiot and you're making the rest of us look like idiots. That's a, that's a paraphrase. Yeah, just, no, yeah. No, he wasn't speaking English. So it's my translation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, it's ignoring everything else. Like ignoring even other parts of our own persons like our own our own lives people who have dedicated themselves to very like niche subjects about the natural world saying that they don't know what they're talking about yeah it's kind of an arrogant reading right when when you are somebody who read genesis 1 and you think you know how the universe began and then you speak to somebody who studies who studies the beginning of star formation and you tell them about that and they go eh, that's that's not how it looks and then you're like but it's what the bible says eh, is it though <laughs> so why is this important? Like, why is it important to us? The Bible? Why not jettison the whole thing? I mean, really, the the question was much broader than that. Like, why is the Bible important? And why is it important to read it progressively? Like, wh what? <sighs> exactly what I'm trying to ask. Yeah. I, so the Bible, as far as I'm concerned is uh, a series of books that took thousands of years to write that detail people's exploration of the human existence alongside God. And their understanding of what God is, who God is, what God is into and what God's not, that evolves over the course of even the written scriptures themselves. Hmm. The God in the beginning is seems kind of different than the God of later. And I, I don't think that's because God like chilled out in God's old age <laughs> or something. I think it's more that our our understanding of what we need God to be changed. Hmm. Um, and kind of, you know, the fact that that's okay in terms of scripture, that God can still be the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Um, it's just that God is so much bigger than any of our explanations. You know, there's that old old uh, Buddhist parable that there's seven blind monks who are all feeling a an elephant and describing what an elephant is and all of them have a different explanation of what an elephant is because they're all feeling a different part of it but it's all an elephant hmm. so God can seem to change throughout scripture but that's just because we're seeing a different part of the elephant and 
Are you calling God an elephant? Absolutely. How dare you? How dare I? Elephants are great. They are pretty great. Elephants have tear ducts that are spes- that are only used for showing emotions. Isn't that fun? Elephants cry. Ugh, I love elephants. <laughs> Ugh. Anyway, um, so because it's this long history, I think it's so important because I I didn't invent any of this. Right. And if I separate myself from that history, then I'm going to invent a God that does all the things that I want God to do. Mm. A God that hates all the same people as me and loves all the same people as me and affirms all the things about myself that I like and uh, gives me excuses for the things I don't like. I can even like go around to other traditions and I can read all the other holy texts and I can pick out bits and pieces that sound good and make a kind of old country buffet style God. And none of that challenges me. I have no reason to be challenged when I can just change. Hmm. So uh, change what I'm reading anyway. So I think this is the, the holy texts that I've been handed. They're flawed. And they're beautiful. There's deep, deep wisdom that made it. Hmm. There's a lot of things that people thought were wisdom that, you know, within a few generations, folks were like, nah, that doesn't make the cut. And then gets cut from the book Hmm. or entire books that just get cut because, yeah, they were probably good for a time, but they don't rise to the same level. Hmm. So there's a kind of culling that has happened that, like, these books that have been handed to us have value and i think they have been co-opted and they have been used and abused by christians in power that we have come to a place in our time when the bible is a weapon used by one group of christians and the progressive christians out there just are so scared of being labeled hateful or regressive or unscientific (laughs) or whatever it is that they don't even touch the Bible. And they, you know, I hate the phrase throw the baby out with the bathwater, but, you know, yeah, we're throwing out the baby and the rubber ducky and um, the soap and the shampoo and everything else with the bathwater because they're they're. I I would like to reclaim scripture. <laughs> well, yeah, I was going to say I feel like for me in in adjusting the way that I interpret scripture and 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 opening up it's actually kind of harder. Like it like Jesus has a bit more teeth than what he does what the, the the kind of teeth that he had before right mm-hmm. so like you know the 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 texts about blessing you know the the blesseds who are all the blesseds mm. who are all the curseds the whole you know and it it's i don't typically end up on the blessed lists like <sighs> i typically end up on the curseds unless i'm actually like paying attention to the things that Jesus is paying attention to, right? So, like, it is liberative. It is it is something that is worth celebrating. It's not just worth, like, this is what we're not for. This is what we are against. This is, 
you know, people deserve to be enslaved. People, you know, women deserve to be subservient. Like, like, no, <laughs> like, actually, this is the kind of thing that Jesus was not for, that, that he, he was saying, you're thinking too small. Mm-hmm. Your thinking is way too small. You have lost your way. Um, the prophets, like, really, they're like yelling at people. They're like really, really angry, and and they're angry because the people have lost their way. And so, like the 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 you know in in the scripture are a bunch of prophets. There's a bunch of leaders. There's a bunch of political leaders. There's a bunch of um, people who are on the margins. There's a bunch of, and 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 there is a distinct challenge to those with power to not push those folks in the margins aside to not suppress them, to actually say, you all think, like, the way you're all thinking about what's important, it's jacked up. Like, stop doing the bad thing. Like, you're doing really bad things. There are people who are literally on the streets begging um, and 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 in order to justify your being okay with that, you give them labels and you other them. Stop it. Like, stop doing this thing. This is not the way it's supposed to be. Um, and so I think in in many ways, having a, a different way of interpreting the Bible calls me into account a lot more than following a very black and white scripture, because then I have to give attention to complexity. I have to give attention to to the gray. Yeah. Um, and I have to make space for it. But also, like, realize that the right and wrong is important. But what, what actually is that? Yeah. So. It's like I'm imagining... If I were to be like, all right, I'm jettisoning the Bible. The Bible has been used as a weapon for too long, is too problematic. There are too many weird things in here that I have to explain away. I'm done. The whole thing, I don't need it. All I need is this. Jesus said to love your neighbor and to love God. And that's it. That's the whole thing. I don't need any of this scripture nonsense. All I have is love God, love neighbor. And I'm just going to live into that, you know, simple sort of thing. So then you're, you and your community are living into that love God, love people, and it's all wonderful and good. And then you've got somebody who, let's say, comes to your church who is a convicted sex offender. Hmm. And now you're like, ooh, okay, how do I love my neighbor? I want to love this person who did this heinous thing and who came out the other side. Um, and who did their time and is now trying to better themselves. I want to love that person. I'm supposed to love that person, got that part. But, you know, there's there's a couple people in my congregation who are victims of abuse and their presence, this person's presence in this church now makes this an unsafe place and they're not going to be here. I want to love them. What do I, what, what, <laughs> what do I do? So then in that situation, I don't know, you work it out with your leadership and you make a decision and maybe you make a policy about that decision. And now that has now had precedence. 
So great, now you have an answer to it. So then that same situation happens, but it's a little bit different this time. Now it's somebody who was accused of abuse, but was never convicted of it. And now it, the person saying it never happened, but the victim saying it did happen. And so now you have to judge another situation. So then you make a decision on that, and now you have more case law. And like you can see that maybe not immediately, but over the course of years or decades or generations, now suddenly, because you're trying to figure out what it means to love people in real time, in real messy individual situations, you've had to come up with judgments. <clears throat> and you've written those judgments down, and then future generations have decided if those judgments are wise and stand up to time, or if they were close-minded and bigoted based on your era. And then over maybe 100 or 200 years, now you have a solid corpus of decisions, which people have agreed are wise and that we're going to try to live our lives by. And oh my God, you've invented religion. <laughs> right? So why do that again when people have already done it? <laughs> and we, we don't have to reinvent religion. Right. We can just reimagine it hmm. and reclaim it. Hmm. The Bible has been used as a weapon for a long time, but it wasn't written as a weapon. Hmm. Not At least not a weapon against the people who are marginalized and oppressed because hmm. it was written by the marginalized and the oppressed. Right. Almost to the letter, pretty much. So anytime that I preach scripture or anytime that I lead a Bible study, this, this is always in, in the midst of all of that. Um, and I, I hope that as we continue to do this church together, that some of that will rub off on you and <laughs> some of our love of scripture and both Nicole and I will also infect you a little bit that you will learn to look at it with new eyes and more appreciative eyes. And especially if you have been hurt by the Bible, the people who have used it to beat you down, that you can discover that it was written for people like you, mm. not for those who would wield it as a weapon. Mm. And I think we'll unpack that a little bit more in the coming weeks. Yeah. Um, but I think that is all the time that we have today. Um, so next time that we talk, uh, we're going to talk about justice issues. The ones that matter that are that are near and dear to our hearts right now, um, which we're understanding are not the only ones that matter. Not exhaustive list. <laughs> not a non-exhaustive list of of uh, justice matters, but also at a more heart level, I I'd really like to know why mercy, justice, equality, those things are progressive values and not just human values. <laughs> um, but that's maybe something we can discuss next week. Yeah. So in the meantime. I, I want to thank all of our, our patrons on Patreon who support this show and make this possible, as well as everyone who has been joining our little church sapling uh, mm -hmm. as we've been figuring out what it means to reimagine church in the 21st century. Uh, we are a couple months into our church, and every week has a new kind of exploratory sweetness to it, yeah. and we would really love to see you. Um, preferably in person so we can talk to you, but um, also available online as well every Sunday morning at the Steel River Playhouse uh, on High Street in Pottstown at 10 a.m. Join us. <laughs>